building a successful product is not just building the product, right? Like we all know that it's building everything else around that. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Shraki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Manish Gark here, and he's the SVP Product and Technology at EarnUp. Welcome, Manish. Hi, Armand. Really good to meet you. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's the story there? For me, from my work perspective, I've mostly grown up in the enterprise software world. That's where I've spent last don't want to age myself too much, but considerable number of years. I worked at SAP for a long time where I really cut my teeth into that and learned the enterprise world. And then I moved on over to a startup for a few years. And then I was with Elimay, which eventually became Ice Mortgage or Ice. It was acquired by Ice. And now I'm with a startup, Ernop, based out of San Francisco Bay Area. And you're working with Ernop. What is that Ernop does? What is the problem that, you know, Ernop? solves. Can you tell us a little bit about the company as well, please? Sure. So Earnup is a double bottom line company, which means we want to do good financially, obviously, like every company, but we also want to do good by our users. We have investors who have invested in our company because of our mission of building a financial system that works for everyone, that works for users, for borrowers like you and me, as well as for large enterprises. A system that works for everyone is a system that really succeeds. And that's what we really believe in. And our mission is to help every borrower manage their debt more effectively than they do today. We believe debt is to some extent unnecessary. It gives leverage to people, but many people are not very adept or very good at managing their debt. So we help with that and we like to see our borrowers get debt free at some point, but that's kind of our story. And along the way, we want to help lenders pitch the right products, bring the right products to the borrowers and help the borrowers succeed. And also for them to be able to grow their top line and their bottom lines as an entire process. Fantastic. And you have been involved in a number of startups, as you mentioned, you are very familiar with the environment. What do you think really about SaaS companies, startup, starting and then how do you define the very initial phases and the way they should approach the market, the way they should look at the product market fit, the way they should even define that in order to get to the initial success that is the problem for most startups to get 
to pass that barrier, talking about B2B, for example. You know, it's really the very crucial part that is the most difficult part is just to pass that $1 million ARR or, you know, getting the initial 10, 20 customers. And that is just a big barrier. That's kind of, you know, when you pass that, then the risk is, you know, much less. And then the fund starts and everything, you know, can work pretty well. And But that start, that very challenging part is a big, big question mark in the mind of many people, how to lower that risk, how to pass that phase faster, how to do it better. What's your take on it? Thanks for asking that question, Norman. Like, it's one of my core expertises to focus on things like that. And I'd love to, I can keep talking about that. So you have to stop me at some point. But I really break that down into three phases. For any company that is starting out or which is relatively younger, finding that product market fit is step number one. And I'll talk more about that. Once you find your product market fit, you have to start building on top of that and scaling your your good market and scaling your market presence. And once you've found the product market fit, you've built and scaled, and then you start optimizing your operations. You start optimizing your business. You start optimizing everything in the company and you start improving your margins as a result of that. And this, in enterprises at least, there's a well-defined model as to how somebody could go about doing it. But it differs slightly from business to business and company to company. But on the whole, finding the product market fit initially, companies have to be very scrappy in doing that. And that's really the true entrepreneurial spirit when you go out and test the market. What does actually product market fit mean? Like, how do you know you achieve product market fit? For me, it's simplest parameter for that is our customers buying your products. And again, I come from enterprise world. So when I say customers, I mean enterprises. Are enterprises buying your customer? Do you have 10, 15 paying enterprises who are paying for your product? And these are customers that you've actually cultivated and brought in organically, meaning not your friends and family or just references or your past. Some will be because without that, it's very hard to bootstrap. But at some point, you need to have a good sense of why people are coming and buying your products and why are they wanting to get on your platform. As as a result of doing that, you will finesse your product, you will finesse your pitch, you will finesse and understand the pain points of the customers really well. Once you start having that kind of attraction, that should get you in the ballpark of two, $3 million of revenue ARR. That's when you start building out and scaling. And again, building and scaling, what does it actually mean? Building your products but also building a go-to-market strategy. How are you going to scale in the market? What are you going to do there? And you reach 20, 30, 50 customers at some point. Again, it depends on the size of the customers. You reach 15, $20 million in, in ARR, and that's when you start optimizing and improving your operations. Building a successful product is not just building the product, right? Like we all know that it's building everything else around that, building your go-to-market strategy around that. For many businesses, for us specifically, we are we move hundreds of millions of dollars from point A to point B every month. And so we also have to have the right set of operations, compliance, oversight, money movement capabilities. So that is all processes that we have to set up that's outside of directly outside of product per se. Right. So standing up all of those functionalities, having the right partnerships in place. So those are all key factors that will define your success in the market. So that's kind of how I think about it. And each of these parts will differ slightly based on what business you are in. But I don't just think of product and engineering. I think of 
all of the aspects of it. How do you go to market? How are you going to sell it? Who you are going to sell it to? And what other operational aspects you're going to need to succeed in the market? So I'm going to stop here and let you ask the other questions. Sure. So if there are two different scenarios, and one is, for example, let's say you are now at the point that either you want to start or you want to invest or you want to work with two different startups and one of them is going to go to a greenfield and it's a new kind of territory and the other one is just going to take an existing territory, something that people know, but just making it better, faster, cheaper, right? So one versus the other. In one situation, you are creating something new that does not exist today. And then the other one is not creating something new, but creating something better. And by better, either has to be faster or cheaper or some characteristics of it or one of them or all of them. So how do you see, you know, from your perspective and your experience, if you had really the option to pick one versus the other, you would say, this is the approach I would take. This is the one that based on my experience, I can do a better job to gauge the interest, gauge the, you know, manage the risk and make a better success. Sure. Very good question, Arman. I think two very different things, building something new versus building something better are completely sort of very different things from different perspectives. Building something new altogether can also be very challenging because maybe you're even creating a new category all by itself. Creating a new category means your go-to-market motion is going to be very, very difficult because now you have to go out and educate every customer out there. Why do they need this product? There is no existing mental model for them to map what you are selling to them and how they view the world. So you have to really create a mental model on that. But if you succeed, then you reap the rewards, right? Like the example that people often would cite for something like that is just how iPhone came and it just completely different paradigm. And who would have thought that you don't need physical buttons? And yet like somebody would have told people that before an iPhone came out that you can just type on a glass, like it was always, it was discussed, but never considered seriously till people had access to that. Something new means you really inherently understand have a very deep understanding of the problem you're trying to solve. Even deeper understanding of that than your consumers do. And that can be a very unsettling feeling because your conviction is only coming from you and there is very little market validation on, on any of that. But that can also mean that you can succeed big time, right? Because for anyone else to catch up to you would take a very long time because A, you already know things that nobody else knows, including your customers, or at least they've not realized it till then. And then you build things and you build your processes, you build your products around that notion. So for anyone else to catch up, it would take a long time. So you can have a first mover advantage and really grow a market and grow a segment and define your own categories and companies have done that and they've succeeded big time. Like when SaaS came out, Salesforce was a beacon of doing that and maybe they weren't taken as seriously back then, but that's another example of somebody just came out and said, no, enterprise software can be done all in the cloud and they showed they sort of vanguard in that path and now everyone's kind of doing it and they still hold their market leadership position after all these decades that they've been in the market, right? At least at least 20 plus years that they've been a well-known brand. On the other side, when you talk about taking something existing and building something to become better, that's also feasible. But in my opinion, when you're building something better, the biggest competition you will have is the status quo 
that the customer already has in place, either an existing process or product or a competitor's product. By having a product which is twice better or five times better, usually won't cut it. There is no magic number, but people often cite 10x is the number where your product has to be 10x better than the current alternative that people have. And it has to be that much more competitive in price. So you have a product that is 10 times better and it is more competitive on price. As I mentioned earlier, if you're entering an existing category, if you're existing a really big tab, there are embedded players in there, you are going to have to compete on price and a better product. So price is going to be part of the equation here, right? So yes, unless you can build something 10 times better, which can be very difficult for a startup, right? Because most startups are scrappy at the beginning. They build something that barely sort of works and then they try to make it better over time. But you're turning that over its head and saying, no, 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 hold on. Out of the gate, you need to come out with a product that is 10 times better than an existing viable option in the market. And those guys have had years and years to hone in on the product. And you don't get a second shot at it. So completely different set of challenges. Of course, it can be done. And companies have done that very well. Like, I think the best example of that, in my opinion, is Google. When they came out with their search engine, it's not like they were the first search engine. They were other search engines but they were just so much better. There was no competition and they came out with something that has been unparalleled to this time and age, right? So that's sort of the 10X advantage that they've been able to take to market and they just kind of cleaned out the market there. So that's how I think about new versus better. I don't think one is necessarily preferable, but you just have to go in it with your eyes open is how I think about it. So you tell me if uh, I'm summarizing this correctly or not, but essentially what I hear from you is that either one path is lower risk, lower reward versus creating something new is higher risk, but higher reward. I would think even better is very high risk and very high reward. The risks are different. And when you're building something new, so when you're building something better, out of the gate, your product has to be very, very, very good, or it has to hit a very specific niche that nobody else is thinking about. I think there are risks on both sides of the market. The go-to market motion is where there is difference. If you're building something better, people have a mental model and it's easier to explain to them what your product is, what it does and how they should use it. And that your product is 10 times better and you need to exhibit that. When it's new, you have to spend more time educating the people. And once that bulk goes on and you get the traction, then you know the world is your playground and you can keep expanding. And then I have seen some companies doing the hybrid model. And what I mean by that hybrid model and more, I would say, very pragmatic approach is that they take an existing market, they build the core in that existing market, and then they start innovating, getting into the market, getting into some other areas that do not exist. And at that point, since they already have established the business, the brand, the operation, it just helps them then to really get into those new categories and the innovative part. But they already have built the core the way that they could actually, you know, get the business going and building the core. Have you seen that kind of approach as well? Is it something that, you know, it's a hybrid model, meaning that at the start you are kind of managing your risk the best you can, and then when you are established, you increase 
the innovation level to get to the new market. And then at that point, there's less risk to you versus a very beginning of a very startup, as you said, with everything is crappy and minimum resources. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the more common models. This is what is called beachhead. And in my opinion, the chances of success here is a lot higher. Before I get there, I want to touch back on how people define total addressable market or TAM and what that means and how you get into something with a niche and then expand out from there. A lot of times companies, especially startups, chase very, very big TAMs. If you ask them, what is the total addressable market you're going after? The bigger the number, the better it is. I'm chasing a TAM, which is $100 billion or $50 billion. And in my opinion, that's somewhat of a mythical number and companies have to be very careful in how they define that. And I'm saying all this, I'll come back to your question, but I want to set this context. It's mythical because if the TAM really is that big, there probably are existing competitors in that space who are deeply entrenched, which means when you're going to enter the market, you're not entering a net new market, net new category. You are entering a crowded space and you are you're going to have to compete on price because having an offering which is 10x or 20x better is very, very difficult. So you're probably going to come out with the offering at best, which is at par with the market, which means price is the main leverage that you have. So, and again, as a startup competing on price can be very difficult. If there's a big entrenched player, they can lower their price very easily and completely take you out. So there's a lot of risk there. The second reason why I, I feel people have very high times is also to when they go out with their pitch decks and such, it is, it's a notion that if I have a big TAM, I'm a more attractive investment. But in my opinion, it's actually much safer for the company and also for investors. If you go in with a TAM, which is specific, very specific sort of niche, not a small TAM, but still not an unreasonably high number either. But you go in with a niche, and this is where I'm coming back to what you were talking about. You enter in a market with a beachhead product and you solve a very specific problem that nobody else is solving, either because it's not big enough for existing big players to solve, or it's just a problem that nobody's really talked about a lot. That's how you enter that market and you grow out from there. You build trusted partners by solving a few problems for them, which are really big pain points from them. And once you're embedded, that's when you can start growing from there and start building out your product left, right, and wrap yourself in different processes and grow. And I think that's a good model to succeed, a safe, good model. I'm not saying that you should build something completely new. Absolutely, we should, like that's how innovation happens. We should build something which is better. But there is a model where you can enter a market with a featured product to address a very specific niche problem that not many people are looking at and then start to grow out from there by building trusted partners. So that's the third model in my opinion, which is also a good recipe for success. So essentially differentiation is king. That's what you say. So if you can't really differentiate yourself very well, and then you're addressing a good need and a good market, that's it. You are highly differentiated. Your need that you are addressing is real. It's a good size market. So you have everything you need. Now you look at some companies and you see them and you may say, well, they really don't have the good product market fit. How 
can you detect that in your view when you look at the company to to see if from your perspective the product market fit is there or not even if they have some customers but you wanted to look at it in a way that if they can really scale it if this product market fit is really real to the point that you know they don't hit the wall very quickly they will continue to really grow what are the characteristics that can tell you this product market fit is very robust versus this product market fit is okay but not that robust yeah great question so again like we talked about the ultimate test of product market fit is are people really buying your product are they willing to put their money if if you go and validate the market a lot of customers will say yes i love that you're solving this problem and i would absolutely buy your product but only a fraction of those people will actually invest and put money when they have to so pure market validation and feedback is great but i don't think it's it gives you a complete picture so to know whether a company is going to hit a product market fit and it's actually going to scale is to see whether there are real customers who are willing to put their money where their talk is the other thing with the enterprise market which is very different from direct consumer market is it's a lagging indicator your commitment from customers is a lagging indicator enterprise deals can take a much longer time to close going out with a product which is direct to consumer takes lesser time to scale or have more consumers if your product goes viral you can have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users joining your product every day and even leaving that quickly so that's a different type of scale in enterprise going out having those conversations especially when you're new and young takes a significant amount of time especially if your arr is a few hundred thousand dollars is your target arr that you're going for it'll take time to close these deals so it'll not be known till 3 4 5 months after you start making those pitches and then on a rotating basis whether you're really succeeding but that's where having a really good marketing funnel and a sales funnel in the process early on makes a big difference you have to start measuring how is my top of the funnel looking like top of the funnel can be addressed by many things right you can have a really good lead gen process in house and that will bring a lot of customers in the top of your funnel you have to start measuring how deep are the customers coming into my funnel like are they coming all the way down to the level where we are having a final price negotiation conversation or not or do they just see my product and then they don't come back and so there are different ways to measure it right in the beginning are people getting more attracted to my product as i adjust my pitch and are they coming deeper in my funnel and ultimately are they willing to commit to my product and are they ultimately willing to buy my product and am i increasing the velocity first half of the year i was able to close 10 customers second half of the year now i'm able to close 12 customers and i'm getting better now i can close 15 customers my time to sale my the amount of time it takes me to close a deal is also shrinking it's gone down from 6 months to 4 months those are really good indicators how long is it taking you to close those deals and in enterprise deals you cannot shrink it less than some amount of time it's very hard to close deals in days or weeks it could be done but usually not but is it shrinking is it becoming faster are more customers coming on board is your arr size increasing in scope in in total dollar value which means you are also starting to go beyond your niche and you are offering additional services which you didn't earlier so those are some of the key characteristics that are easy to track easy to look at and you can have a process to track that and go off of that but that's kind of what i would use 
at a very rudimentary level. Super. Changing gears a little bit and asking you also another question that I know you have experience with. Uh, what's your take on the role of AI machine learning in today's kind of, you know, businesses or not necessarily from technology standpoint, but from the impact that it has in everybody's people life and in businesses that are building businesses around that and the, you know, the impact that it's going to have in our everyday life, right? So is it going to be very gradual as it has been? What are the most, the major impact you are expecting to see in the coming years as a result of that? I think AI, machine learning, have become more of a part of our life than we even realize. And that's really a beauty of anything that is built on AI and analytics. It needs to be just so seamless. When you have to think of it as two different things, that's kind of where the friction arises. Before I get more into AI and ML, in general, the notion around having access to data, notion around having access to analytics, is a very sexy notion. People have built companies and have sold those ideas of giving you access to a lot of data, giving you access to a lot of analytics. But for the most part, I don't think people wake up in the morning and go to work saying, today I'm going to go and analyze some data. Yes, there are data analysts to do that, but for most of other people, that's not how to think. And while this idea is really sexy that I'll have access to a really cool set of analytics, most people don't really know what to do with that data or what to do, how to process that information. So unless that experience become very seamless and it's not a separate experience from what the consumers are consuming, it is not going to succeed. An example, right? Tesla, self-driving, self-driving features. There's a lot of AI that's built into that, but you don't think of the AI that's built into it. You think of the fact that, hey, my car can sort of do self-driving. Now I can take my hands off the wheel and I can relax a little bit, I still have to be attentive. There is an insane amount of computation that your car is doing at that point. I know everyone's like, these are these are very cliche examples, but like your shopping experiences on some websites, your movie watching experiences, what yeah, some of the social media content that people consume. It's in the background, it is a lot of machine learning and AI that's happening, which caters this experience, makes it personalized to you or solves really, really difficult problems like Tesla's trying to solve or other self-driving. I'm just using Tesla as an example. There are many other self-driving car companies and software that are coming up. As a consumer, you don't experience that as a separate thing. You don't sit in a Tesla and go, I wonder how good my AI is doing, the AI in this car is doing. That's really when it starts to matter. What does that mean for enterprise companies? Enterprise companies often for them, if they've already had an application out in the market, are sort of trying to retrofit AI and analytics back into their products. So it's almost like a separate product today, right? You have your products. Now you can also use analytics and you can analyze a bunch of data, but it needs to come back into the experience that the end user is having and improve that experience. Maybe take out some of the steps that a user has to do today and automate that as a result of AI. In lending space, uh, I'm in the lending world. In lending space, a lot of things can be automated. A lot of decisions could be automated by the virtue of harnessing the data and making decisions on behalf of what somebody else would do at that point. And having AI and ML 
augment what humans would otherwise have to do. A lot of stare and compare, a lot of mundane decision making could just be automated. Machines are really good at taking mundane tasks and doing it over and over and over. And humans are very good at handling exceptions and things, seeing things which are really hard otherwise for machines to see and understand, right? So I think that's where it needs to come together. It has not quite because it's hard to retrofit all of that intelligence into an existing application and the new breed of applications that are coming out or that will come out ought to be thinking about this experience. And I'm sure many of them are. But that's, I think, would be the next generation of enterprise applications where it's just not a transactional application. But these are also applications which are transactional and intelligent at the same time. And they remove that friction for the user, for the user to have to do unnecessary things. Why do I have to do those things? And that's how I think about AI and ML. And from that vision, I think we are still a little bit far away in the enterprise world. It is penetrating consumers much faster consumer-facing space much faster. But on the enterprise side, it takes time because it takes time to move away from what exists and bring in new applications. So that's sort of my two cents on on that side. The technology is definitely there. Up till a few years ago, the challenge was the technology. But I think the compute, the cloud, the technology, the models that people have built over time and the overall understanding in the market that is there. So there are some of those factors which are now there available. Seven, eight, ten years ago, there was probably not enough compute, not enough knowledge in the market, not enough trained people who knew how to do that, not enough built models out there which could help you do that. Everything had to be done in-house. You had to build all these models. You had to train your own AI, which is not easy for every company. So I think we've definitely solved a lot of problems and now we have to think about what is the design, how does that evolve in light of this technology? You're absolutely right. I think the part that is really, uh, for most part, might be hidden, and we may not really think about it, is the part that is it infused enough, right? So it might exist, but if these are very much working with each other in a very tightly integrated way, rather than working as different elements, and separated. So first, these elements, each by itself, needs to be created. Then the second phase that normally people underestimate, how long does it take, how difficult it is, is that then you need to integrate them together. Just because there is a camera and there is a phone and there is a GPS doesn't mean you have one device that does all of these in a very integrated way, right? So first phase is to create these technologies, but then it takes really, really long time to really bring all of these technologies to work with each other in a very, very seamless way. Building a car and building software. Can you build software and car to be very much integrated with it? And that's where we are today. So car manufacturers now are becoming software companies because they realize these two needs to be together. That's 100% right. And even for us at Earnup, we don't necessarily pitch some of the capabilities we have as AI capabilities. It's just a better user experience. For example, we, we have a lot of transactions that go through our application. As I mentioned, like we move hundreds of millions of dollars every month. And there are tens of thousands of borrowers who are paying their mortgages and other loans on our platform. There's a lot of data that goes through our application. We are able to take some of the data. We are able to convert that into insights 
for our lenders and we don't tell them hey here is an ai engine that's going to tell you what you could do with that but what we tell them is here are borrowers who are in the market looking for these additional type of lending products and we know that because we build models to enable lenders to do that that's how we grow help our lenders to grow their top line to help them connect with the right borrowers at the right time and then on the other side we we help our borrowers who are using our platform to help them sort of pay off their mortgages more efficiently hey you know what other people like you have put in a little bit more money and now they can pay off their loans faster and you are going to be able to do that it's not out of the realm of possibility for you so maybe you ought to consider that and we're not just saying that we are saying that because we build powerful models to predict it so we bring all of that back to the end users whether it's our consumers or whether it's enterprises uh, without them actually having to explicitly think about analytics because we make it very actionable for them so that's an example of how we've designed our applications to do something similar to that yeah so you, you mentioned the other point that from technology point of view it seems like you know we are getting there it reminded me of something that you know it's very famous saying that any startup doesn't matter how much money and time they have they will need more right so you never can <laughs> doesn't matter how much time you have as a startup doesn't much how much funding money you get still you are going to be short of it and then the, the, the same thing comes to my mind very similar thing about doesn't matter how much memory how much CPU speed, somebody gives your software, still you are going to ask for more. Never ever you are getting to the point to say, I'm fine. I have enough processing power. I can do everything. Software has proven that whenever we accomplish something and then we wanted to do more and push the envelope. And it's still, I mean, right now, just look at, you know, everything, all of these great ideas that people wanted to do with Metaverse. And then the question is, can we do it? We still don't have as much processing power and battery in very small space. And then technology becomes the barrier. Now, five years, 10 years from now, you get 10 times more processing power in one tenth of the kind of a space. And then you can do more. But I promise you at that point, it's still you are asking for more because the Metaverse 2.0 now is there and everybody is talking about that one. So never ever we get to the point that we can say we are satisfied, technology is there, and then you know let's just you know think about other stuff. But but super exciting time, and I would say definitely during my lifetime, uh, I have been you know I have seen from zero technology to the point that hard to even live for one hour before without technology. So definitely it's getting more and more into our lives and has increased uh, the quality of life for most of us. So. Absolutely. I agree with you, Armand. I would like to ask you also to share with us a book or a blog, whichever that really you have enjoyed most and it has been more impactful in what you do. Yeah. There's one book that I, I really like. It's always on my desk and I tell everyone in my team to also read it at least once. It's called High Output Management by Andrew Grove. It's a classic. It was written many years ago, but it's so practical and it is so prescriptive in many ways. It's free of all jargon. He's really simplified all the management rules. And it's, it's really fascinating how after all of these years, I think it's been several decades now, 
all of the principles that he lays in that book are still very applicable in today's world. And he breaks it down, how you manage your work, how you manage your life. And I'm, I'm very fascinated by that. I do, I do spend quite a bit of time listening to podcasts as well and some other books. Uh, one podcast in particular I've, I've heard a lot is Masters of Scale by Reid Hoffman, who's founder of LinkedIn. Like It's a very fascinating podcast. Of course, he has enough of sway in Gravitas in the Valley, but he's able to bring in really good leaders in that podcast and talk about that. I also like to listen to your podcast, by the way, Arman. So you brought in some really good people as well. Um, Thank you very much. And I've also taken interest in other hobbies like woodworking, etc. So I do read some books, etc. on that as well. It's kind of fascinating for me to build things outside of work as well. So, yeah. Great. I appreciate it, Manish. It was great speaking with you and hope to, you know, continue that in the future and wish you all the best. Thank you, everyone. It was really good talking to you. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve A the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.